Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today I'm joined by Dr. Yanina Ramirez, inspirational historian, broadcaster, and author based at the University of Oxford. Dr. Ramirez hosts a podcast called Arc Detective, which I will put a link to in the description below, and is the author of a new book called Riddle of the Runes, a Viking mystery. Dr. Ramirez, thank you so much for joining me today. It is an honor, Noah. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be in a space where I can quite happily talk about Vikings at length. So it's a, it's a real <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. So, you know, um, I'll just jump right into the first question. Your book, Riddle of the Runes, which I actually have a copy of and very much enjoyed. What inspired you to write the book and where did your fascination with Vikings begin? Oh, gosh. Well, it's kind of a two-pronged question there, really. Um, I'll, I'll start with why I wrote that book particularly. Um, I wanted to write children's fiction from when I was a child. I, I read English literature at university because I, I just was transported from the age of about six or seven into these wonderful worlds. And a lot of what I read was based in the past. And I, was, I found that the more historical fiction I read, the, the more passionate I got about history. Um, and so it was always my ambition to write children's fiction. But when I went to university, I had to do a module at Oxford on old English literature. And everybody else found it deeply boring and just copied the translations out of books. <laughs> but I got so immersed in the language, the culture, the the imaginative world of and firstly Anglo-Saxon England, but but then the broader early medieval world that I ended up specialising in that field and, and falling more in love. The more I found out about the art, the manuscript, the sculpture, the architecture, the, the, the more I kind of parked my idea of being a children's fiction writer and went on instead on this academic career that, that I've been incredibly fortunate to share through television, through radio, podcasts. Um, and I've had the most extraordinary journey, the most wonderful life up until this point with this, this deep-rooted passion in the medieval. But um, when the option came to go back to that first love of writing children's fiction, uh, I was approached by Oxford University Press, who said, um, you know, the Vikings are a, a huge part of, of children's syllabus at school now. Would you be an academic consultant on a series of books? I said, no, I want to be the writer. I want to be the author. This is a second chance at that early dream. So it's, it's all my passions colliding, really. <laughs> and I think um, in particular, the understanding of the Anglo-Saxon and the Viking world were essential to writing fiction about it. Um, and, and I found that you know, when, when I was constructing my characters and I was constructing the landscape and the storylines, I knew an, a lot about the world, of that world I was trying to reconstruct. So the, the story sort of wrote itself, really. How wonderful. That's fascinating. And that's awesome that all of your, your passions could really come together, you know? I mean, but one thing that I'm so fascinated with about the Viking Age is warriors are cool and the raids the Vikings went on are, are pretty, pretty interesting. But one thing that I find deeply fascinating are women during the Viking Age, shield maidens, Valkyries, uh, goddesses. I just find this so fascinating because truly when compared to other societies uh, in the medieval world at the time, uh, the Vikings were very different. So could you tell us a little bit more about the female lead character of the book, Alva? Absolutely, Noah. You hit the nail on the head, really. This was something that I've been passionate about throughout my research. And actually, I've written about um, the saints, including St. Hilda and St. Bridget, who were formidable women. 
coming out of as a warrior culture into the church. Um, and Julian of Norwich, who, you know, again, the first woman to write in English. But when it came to the Viking world, there is something intrinsically different about the way that that, that world viewed the role of women. And I think some of it is so completely deep rooted in these millennia of sea voyages that we see taking place around Scandinavia. I've often said, you know, geography and landscape are so fundamental to understanding things like religion, myth, legend, social construct, and the very geography of places like the Norwegian fjords. Um, the fact that you have to jump in a ship to move from point A to point B because it's so difficult to go over the mountaintops and ridges um, meant that they were a seafaring nation for, or, or race, if you like, from a very, very, very early time. There's millennia of evidence for, for shipbuilding, boat building. And that led to a culture of, of trade, of navigating the seas, which in turn led to a society whereby the men of the, of the society would travel. They would go a Viking, they would go away. And in those months in the spring and the summer when they were away, all of the responsibilities were left in the laps of the women. And as a result, we see such, a, I think, quite a lot of power given to women within that framework. They feature so heavily in the sagas. Uh, we see them, of course, as you mentioned, in the religious framework with the Valkyrie, with Freya, and um, and they could play a role as as seers. There's this evidence coming out of the archaeology for crystal balls, wands, all this suggestive stuff that maybe women were conducting religious rites, that they had a role to play within the Norse, Norse religion. And so the last, I suppose, box to tick was about the fact that they were shield maidens, that they could not just do everything that men could do within the social construct, but they could fight like them too. And I've long held that that was the case. Reading the, the, reading the literature, reading the mythology, in my mind, there was never any doubt that if, a man, if there were men being trained up to the sort of extent that we see with Viking warriors, why wouldn't there be, not all women, but the occasional woman who would be able to, to engage with that sort of training? And of course, you know, archaeology was, was struggling to prove this, until we come across the Burka warrior grave, which was such a huge discovery, so recently as well, which, you know, although the grave was discovered in 1880-odd, it was um, long thought to be male because of the grave goods that were with it, the sword, the, the, the sacrificed horses, the, the, the axe. And um, that was very much the case with, with early archaeology. If you found male attributes within a grave, it must be a male grave. But once the DNA, DNA analysis was reassessed, of course, it's shown it is, in fact, a woman. And I am so excited about the state of uh, Scandinavian and, and Viking archaeology in general over the next decade, because I think we'll be able to revisit so many early um, skeletons. And, of course, many of them won't come back as female, but there may be the odd one or two that proves this point that women could have this role as warriors as well. So, weirdly, I'd actually started writing my book before the Burke discovery. And I knew I wanted, at its heart, a strong female shield maiden. Um, but then when that came through, it was such validation. I've always felt as an academic that that was a, you know, like I say, it was a, it was a bridge we still needed to cross, that it, it wasn't fully accepted. But now I feel there's so much more, more grounds for that. So it's an exciting time. <laughs> and I think that Alva's kind of coming out of that. That's incredible. That's incredible. And certainly the Bjerka discovery was uh, an absolute watershed. Uh, fascinating. And, you know, I'd have to agree with you. That's something that I've uh, thought a lot about. And I've been fortunate here on on the podcast to be able to bring in 
you know, some uh, Viking Age female scholars, uh, which have provided a lot of insight. And, you know, that's one thing I was kind of thinking about. Okay, well, did uh, Viking women take up arms and, and go a Viking? But I'm convinced that if they uh, held so much significance and power in society at large as they did, you know, why wouldn't they sort of go all the way? Why wouldn't they be permitted to go all the way? So I'd have to agree with you. And I think that that was, uh, it's, it's a personal feeling, isn't it? The more time you spend immersing yourself in these periods in history, uh, I mean, you and I, we're fascinated by this world. And so all the things you read, you build up a picture, you build up a sense of the time. And, and the role of women, to me, comes through very, very clearly, particularly in the literature that's left behind, but also the law codes. I mean, a lot of them are surviving from much later when they're being written down. But even then, you've got rights of divorce, you've got uh, legal rights that women ceased to have um, due to the power of the Western church uh, for, for many, many, many centuries. And I think that we're still, almost still coming to terms with the idea that women from the past could hold power and authority. Um, it's so recent. We're just celebrating in the UK at the moment 100 years of suffrage, the idea that women have had the vote for 100 years. And, and that, it, it is in our minds that every woman before then must have been suppressed, must have been powerless. But there are exceptions. And they are, they are exceptions within a field of, 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 of a world that is male-dominated. And, and one of the things I wanted to do with writing Riddle of the Reams was also to, I suppose, uh, add a flash of a very macho misconception of the Viking world. It is a macho world. It's a world of you know, um, beards and battle and, and violence and emotion. And, uh, and that is not all that there is. There is so much more. Things like the trade element I find so interesting. I made. I was lucky enough to make a programme with BBC4 where we went to see the Edinburgh exhibition of the Scandinavian material that had come over um, and been, been exhibited in, in such a new way for a British audience. And in there, um, they... They sort of deal with the cliche straight off about horned helmets, about um, the raids, which of course are recorded as being very violent, uh, particularly in places like Lindisfarne. But then they moved on very quickly to show the, the many dimensions of the Viking world. And the bit that struck me so much was the area on trade and um, relationships with other parts of the world. I was so struck to see a very small jade Buddha that had been buried in, in a Viking grave. And the idea that, that they're traveling along the Silk Road, they're interacting with countries where jade is, is prevalent, but they're also trying to understand mm. this new religion that they're engaging with, Buddhism. And not only are they fascinated by it, they're so entranced by it that they're choosing to take it back to their homeland and be buried with it. And I just think that adds such flesh to this picture. Uh, and I'm sure it's something you encounter time and again, isn't it? The, the, the dimensions of this world. Yes. Oh, yeah, no. And it's so hard, even as somebody as myself who studies Vikings all the time, it's so hard to sort of break those mental stereotypes and understand who Vikings really were, just in terms of, you know, this, these enduring images of these burly, bearded, uh, ferocious, fierce Viking male warriors. Um, that's ne not necessarily who the Vikings were at all. Um, they were much more intelligent than that. Uh, as well as, you know, just reading the archaeological evidence. I mean, unfortunately, disease was all too common among the Viking Age, and certainly we can see evidence of that in the skeletal structures of uh, a lot of Viking men. Uh, so it's it's just fascinating to be able to shift your your perspective of, of who the Vikings really were. And I think that um, one of the things I, I've been doing sort of on both sides of the North Sea, if you like, because 
my first love was Anglo-Saxon, Old English, before I went on to get more immersed in Old Norse. Um, the parallels you can see and the cliches, really, that, that have been applied to both these different groups of people are, as you say, they're very, very hard to break down. Um, and one of the ones that I find so hard is the way that we can use the humanities, use literature, use art to give us an insight into these people. I've just recently been finishing a book on Beowulf. And for such a long time, people thought that Beowulf was equivalent to Lord of the Rings, that it was a fantasy work, that you know, these these halls and these weapons and this uh, gold and all the rest of it, because it has a dragon in it, that it must be fantasy, that these things didn't exist, that the Anglo-Saxons lived nasty, brutish, short lives and died young of disease and, and there was no colour in their lives. <laughs> and then, of course, we end up with something like the Sutton Hoo ship burial. Um, and that's totally changes our understanding of the literature. Suddenly it's not a fantasy, it's rooted in, in archaeological finds that have come out of the ground and prove these people lived this sort of existence. And that's why I think that, I think medievalists by their very nature have to yeah. be interdisciplinary. We have to open ourselves up to discoveries in science, in technology, um, and, and across the board with, with archaeology, with history, and with legal studies. And only then do you really get a sense of who these people are. And so, I mean, in terms of making a new mould for the Vikings, one of the characters, if you've managed to read Riddle of the Runes, um, Magnus was quite an important character for me. That's uh, Alba's uncle. And I think he, he, even from the first description of him, I wanted him to be a, oh, yes, a counter, if you. you like, to the, the macho, <laughs> brutish, um, violent Viking, who we sort of see characterised in, in the Jarl, in Jarl Eric, and also in, in Bjarka the Butcher. But, but Magnus is, is neither of those. He's a worldly man. He's traveled a lot. He's engaged with the Islamic world and brought back discoveries like magnifying glasses. He's engaged with the Christian world and has understood how to use vellum and manuscripts. And, and I really believe that those people were there. They were, they were traveling. They were interacting. A lot of the time they were settling and getting to know the cultures around them. And so this idea of a one-dimensional Viking, it to me, it just seems crazy, really, <laughs> as I'm sure it does to you. Yeah, and that was an excellent point you made about Beowulf, how that's kind of a misconception. And I mean, I feel this way about the Norse sagas, and I know certainly some people will disagree with me, but I think that too often the content of the sagas are dismissed as 100% fiction, uh, simply because, you know, there's berserks and... Um, you know, uh, talking ravens and, and Valkyries brought up in these sagas. But I think when we uh, study the Viking sagas, we can really get an excellent look and better understanding of the Viking world, uh, as it were. Absolutely. I, again, you know, um, as well as making this one on Viking art, I was able to make a program on, on Laxdala saga. And um, it was, for a start, it was amazing because I got to spend you know, nine, ten days in Iceland filming in the locations that are mentioned in the book. And um, what there were so many things that came out of that experience, one of which was the idea that Icelandic culture is so recent, you know, that settlers, human settlers, weren't really living on Iceland at all before, before this, the last millennium and a bit. And, and that their history is so recent, and as such, their sense of family ties, of lineage, of connection with figures from the past is incredibly strong. So you have people who who feel they can trace themselves back to the characters in Laxdala. But um, their sense of place is so strong as well. They, they tie themselves to the landscape. Uh, and and that, that is done through history, but it's also continued today. 
But this idea that it's it's not fact, I find that crazy. For me, the sagas, particularly things like like Lacks they're written with this immediacy that's almost like a I don't know, like a James Joyce novel. It's it's sort of stream of consciousness in places and um and it just feels like it's so raw and real. And you get everything, you get their mood swings, you get their virtues and their vices. They're not tidied up like saints in a in a hagiography in saints' lives. They are raw. And that to me makes them an incredible source of insight for the for the time. Um and if, you know, yes, there's going to be elements of fantasy, but that's because in so many ways this is a culture that touches onto the supernatural very openly um and embraces elements of it through its religious framework earlier within the Norse religion. But but why dismiss the why you know why throw out all of the <laughs> all of the eggs just because there's one broken one in the basket? It's it's a it's a sieving act. It's a, it's detective work. When you work on the early medieval period, it's all about being um, very careful and scrutinising your sources with an open mind, but with with a close eye to accuracy. I think that's really an excellent way of of looking at it. I think um, you really do have to sort of put on your de- detective hat, if you will when reading these sagas, but, you know, do you have a favorite Norse saga? I'm curious. I'm always, I always love uh, when I bring on scholars asking them questions like that. Well, I've already mentioned Lexter. I have to say that's my favorite because, because of the female lead. <laughs> okay. It's a, it's such a complex story with a love triangle at its heart. And, and I just think the, the manipulative, um, powerful, authoritative, role of the the female lead is you know, it it doesn't get rivaled in literature for hundreds of years and and the way that the society revolves around this idea of revenge or feuding um blood feuds and and sort of raw aggression again it's that word raw but the idea that they're so inflamed by by love by loss um how can that not be just an exceptional piece of literature it's it's so powerful, but I think that that carries across the sagas. I mean, I love the anything that that touches upon the mythological world, anything that um, gives us an insight into the lost gods and goddesses. And again, you know, it is. I'm constantly being told, oh, you can't make a statement about about Woden or Odin. You can't say something definitive about how Freya was worshipped because everything that was written down comes after the emergence of Christianity, after the introduction of writing and vellum. And so, you know, it's, it's by its very nature filtered through a Christian lens. And I get that. I completely always, I'm transparent when I write about them and I say, you know, this is being penned down after, after the arrival of Christianity. But Christianity arriving, we talk about that in the, in the British Isles as well, you know, the arrival of St. Augustine, the arrival of Christianity. And it doesn't simply wipe out centuries, generations of belief, of tradition, of superstition, um, those things take lifetimes to 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 eke away, and sometimes they never do. Sometimes I keep an association goes back for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is why I love fiction writing in this field as well. I love the work of Neil Gaiman. Um, obviously, he's done the Norse Gods book, but he also made American Gods, and I think that's such a clever twist on how hard it is to fully erode long-held belief systems. Um, and so, you know, I really firmly feel that I navigate a world between fantasy and fact. And I love that. I don't I don't feel apologetic about it. I don't feel the need to 
you know, as an academic, say, oh gosh, this may not be you know, 100% accurate, because that is the world we're dealing with. The, the line between fantasy and fact are, are still blurry at times. And I love, I love that. I think that's just that appeals to me as a scholar and it appeals to me as a writer. You know, in terms of, of Norse literature, um, when comparing it to other literature, other medieval literature, or even going back uh, slightly further, if you would like to, to the classics, you know, Plato, Socrates, what do you think makes Norse literature, the sagas, so special? Like, what really stands out in those works to you? Well, as I think, yes, yeah, as, as I mentioned before, I think it is its immediacy. I think it's actually because Scandinavian saga telling has such an ancient tradition, and it is so fascinating. You know, when when we were looking into um, the work of, of, of the, how the sagas came about as a unique genre in Iceland, for example, one of the things that we turned to again was archaeology. And what's so intriguing about Icelandic um, grave remains is while you check the Y chromosome of male skeletons, their DNA seems to be very firmly rooted back in the Scandinavian homelands, in, in Sweden, in Norway in particular. But when you look at the female line, it is very much coming from the Celtic lands, from Ireland. So there seems to be a scenario where Viking male settlers are marrying with or, or you know, reproducing with Irish women to create this very unique environment in Iceland. And there, again, it takes a leap of the imagination. But you have two very different strands of storytelling. There is a Celtic strand of storytelling where a, a lot of the time, I think, women were storytellers around the fireplace, weaving long legends, long yarns connected with the Irish landscape and the Irish people. And then you have the sort of the macho um, warrior kin that are wanting to have their heroic deeds recorded, wanting to have their battles and their reputations secured. And I think it's the coming together of those two traditions that creates something so unique. And it also emerges away from the formulae that are so intrinsic in the rest of European literature. It's the formulae that go back to the classics, as you mentioned, but that's a classical set of formulae that are then filtered through a long set of Christian formulae. So hagiography, which is another love of mine, it's so formulaic. And for me, the interesting elements in the saint's life come when, when a, a native saint is written up, someone like Bridget in Ireland or someone like Hilda in northern England. And the human touches seep through the, the tropes, through the sort of generic um, normalities of the formula. And that is something that Viking sagas are able a lot of the time to work outside of. And as such, it is it is so original. It is so unique. It is um, powerfully uh, reflective of the time, I think. So that, to me, makes it utterly unique as a genre of literature. And that's why I love it so much. <laughs> so what would you say are your biggest influences for writing Riddle of the Runes? I've heard it said that your book is very Tolkien-esque in a way, which is awesome because I'm a big, uh, a big Tolkien fan myself. Um, but yeah, what would you say are, are your big influences for writing the book? When you went about crafting the sort of the, the landscape uh, of the book, if, if you will, uh, what kinds of um, thoughts were, were going through your head when you were crafting the, uh, setting the stage uh, for the, the book? Oh, that's such a lovely question. I am honored to, that it's been given this 
this line that it's Tolkien-esque. I think that's you know the biggest honor I could have because you know Tolkien did the job I do <laughs> many years before me. He was professor of Old English at Oxford University, but his entire framework again was built out of the same sort of background that, that you and I have spent our lives up to this point working with, you know, how to understand the early medieval world. So I think we were probably coming at this world in a similar way. Um, and, and the thing I love about Tolkien, I don't just love his fiction, I love his, his academic work. I think he was a great mind who, who again, was not afraid to tread that fine line between fiction and fact. And that's why I, th I think he was such a, a great fiction writer. For me, it was a slightly different process. Um, I suppose after, what is it now, two decades away from the dream of writing children's fiction, I had deliberately avoided reading similar children's books. I didn't want to go off and research what other people were writing for nine plus audiences. I just wanted to write the book that was inside me. And when I started to write, I think one of the strange things about Riddle of the Runes for readers when they begin it is it's not really pandering to a children's audience. It is, I don't talk down to them. I don't, um, I don't simplify too much. I explain things. If, you know, if it's a complicated concept like, like runes or like vellum, I will give an explanatory um, bit in, in the voice of the characters. But on the whole, it was to treat the readers like um, interested, curious people with a passion for history. And I haven't brought in fantasy. I think that was a big element that, that we discussed when I was doing the book. Um, Alva has this pet wolf, Fenrir, and Magnus has Hraf, his raven. And there's such a temptation when writing for children to make them you know, talk or make them magical. And certainly a lot of fiction about the Viking period, if you think of How to Train Your Dragon, um, there is this, this dependency on fantasy to give it excitement, to give it a thrill. But what I went to for the thrill factor was another passion of mine, which are um, thrillers and horror and mystery. I love reading thriller books. Um, and so I thought, no, that the thrilling aspect can come from the storyline. It can come from the mystery, from you know, the, the tensions in the relationships within this book. It doesn't need to be a fire-breathing dragon to, get to bring that in. So in many ways, I think I just had to write the book that I was capable of writing. And it's part of a series. Um, and what's so exciting for me is that as the I'm already writing book two, book three and four, I've already developed and I know exactly where, where the characters are going. I know I know where this story is going and it's going into such exotic and unusual realms. But there are actually things that I've read about in my, my academic work. There is so much of fascination within the world of history that I almost feel I don't need to make things up. <laughs> it's, I don't need to add that extra dimension of the supernatural because just exposing the things that get my students excited, things like the Frank's casket, a real object, that is utterly enigmatic and utterly fascinating. I see my students in seminars and lectures, their eyes light up at the wonder and the mystery of it. That is enough, I think, to, to, to make a strong, compelling story set in the Viking period. So that's why I think it's like something slightly different. I, I'm very pleased that I was given free reign to write write the book I wanted to write. Really. I'm very lucky. <laughs> now, how exciting, how exciting. And I couldn't agree more. I think there's really so much, again, understanding the Viking world, something I'm always seeking to do. I think there's so much just 
a life. Can I use that word when talking about Vikings and in just their everyday life and their accomplishment? And uh, there's just this such this narrow window, uh, this 300 year time period in which they were, you know, able to flourish and do all the exciting things they did. But wow, just the legacy they they left behind in their sagas and the excellent stories they told and the mythological creatures that, um, you know, played a part in, in their minds and their thoughts and their poetry is just incredible to me. It is me too. And I think that's why I'm so uh, grateful for the opportunity to tap into this world because it's a living world too. There are, there are people, many people out there to which the Vikings matter so sincerely they want to understand them deeply, not on a superficial level. And I'm constantly in touch with people who you know, they want to understand their heritage. Um, if they have a Scandinavian sounding surname and they live in you know, the Outer Hebrides, why? What's the connection? How did they get there? If particularly I'm fascinated by the links with um, Canada, you know, the idea they got to Newfoundland, but also looking east over towards Russia, I'm amazed by the cultural links that still exist in villages, in areas in Russia. This is real, this matters to people. And the appetite never goes away. There is something incredibly sexy about the Viking world. Their ability to do things that nations wouldn't be able to do for hundreds of years later. The idea, you know, when I ask kids in my talks, um, who got to America first? It's always Christopher Columbus. And then you can say, but you know what? Actually, there were Scandinavian settlers right on the border. And um, and the idea that they, they took on the seas, they took on huge military powers. They were so formidable on the, on the battlefield. But they engaged with so many different cultures. They were fascinated by so many different things. And I think underneath all of that, this approach to women is so key. The idea that Women can engage with this culture and feel positive, feel endorsed that they can find role models, figures from from the literature, from the mythology that make them feel strong. That's why the Viking world is still so attractive. It's why, you know, you can make Marvel movies like Thor Ragnarok, where with young people are just fascinated by the gods, by the by the stories of power and authority. It's it's so rich and it continues to give, but it has to be it has to be approached with an open mind and it has to be approached with academic accuracy. And it's, I suppose, all of our jobs to just keep talking about it and keep dispelling myths and injecting the real truth and excitement about this period. Mm, absolutely. That was very well said. I couldn't agree more. Dr. Yanina Ramirez, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for quite some time, uh, so I'm absolutely delighted that you could join us today. You're certainly welcome back, and I will put a link to Riddle of the Runes in the description below so that you can all go uh, pick up a copy, which I encourage you to do. But again, Dr. Ramirez, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been a complete pleasure. 